That is it. So let's turn in our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10, and uh, we'll start in verse 1. Hebrews 10, starting in verse 1, and um, I always like to remind you that this is an expositional Bible study, basically, um, which means I don't approach the text with a, a theme. Uh, let's see, fanning the flames of communication. Let, let's see if I can find a verse that will go into that. Uh, rather, I'm chained to the text. So if you find that this relates to you today, guess what that is? It's the Holy Spirit of God working in your life and working in mine and bringing us together, aligning our paths uh, with truth. So here we are. Uh, we finally have gotten to chapter 10 of uh, Hebrews, and we start in verse 1, and this is God's word. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, Make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When Jesus said the above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first order in order to st- the first in order to establish the second, and by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Well, let's try to pray one more time. Father, may the truth be spoken and received here today in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you know that whenever I uh, sit down and uh, try to write a message, I. I I try to come up with a main point. I try to articulate a main point. Um, and, you know, some are recurring themes in the scriptures and, and so on, but I, I try to write down and, and articulate a main point, which is why I show it up on the screens. I like to say, this is our main idea today, and I put it up there. And one of the reasons I like to do that is because I find that it's good to have a point. Uh, if you're a public speaker, and uh, I'm sure that you've uh, all been in some church at some point in your life, and you've listened to a sermon, and you're thinking it by the end of it, I wonder if that guy had a point. Uh, it's good to have a point. It's good to have a main focus. In fact, Brian Chappell wrote a, a good book on preaching a number of years ago, and he called it a 3 a.m. test. So if, if the wife uh, jabs you in the side at 3 in the morning and says, what's your sermon about in the morning? You're supposed to go, it's bleh. And if you don't have bleh, then you might not have anything at all. <laughs> So, uh, so um, the, the meaning of the passage is the message of the sermon. That's what I firmly believe. The meaning of the passage is the message of the sermon. So I look at this, and I, I confess there are some hard-to-understand things in here, um, some foreign-sounding things and some confusing-sounding things uh, in this passage, a quote from uh, a psalm in the middle of it. Um, so what should I say? What, what, what could my main point be if I read this? Well, I could say... The whole of the scriptures points to Christ. 
That could be the main point, and uh, that, that's, that's very much um, supported by this passage. In fact, I was thinking about Dave Hogue uh, just last night uh, as I was doing this, looking at this, and I was going, you know what? It's kind of like the Old Testament is a billboard for Jesus Christ. It's a pretty good application, pretty way to go, look, good way to look at it. You drive past it, you can't not see it. It's this, it's this placard. It's this billboard that points us, drives us to Jesus Christ. That could be the main point of this passage, and I think it would be faithful to the text. Or I could make the main idea this. I could say, uh, your souls are safe, you who believe in Jesus Christ and his finished and accomplished work. Your souls are safe forever because Jesus' work on the cross is permanent. I think that's quite supported by the passage. No more are sacrifices to be continually offered and continually offered because Christ is the final sacrifice. It's done, it is finished, and you are safe and preserved and rescued. That could be the main idea of this passage, that Christ has died once for all. That's true. And in fact, both of those potential main ideas will be discussed in the context of this message. But here's what I went with, ladies and gentlemen, is the main idea. The main idea of this passage I went with is this. Jesus Christ is the centerpiece of human history. I think that that is an even larger point. I think it's all-encompassing. Because you look at this fallen world, and you look at your own lives, and you look at the crumbling, decaying morality around you, and you say, what is the remedy? How can this be fixed? Why does life have meaning? Is there a standard of good? The answer is this, that Jesus Christ is the centerpiece of human history, and you think about it. I mean, uh, and, and we'll discuss it more in, in a second, but, you know, it does take into consideration that Jesus Christ is the focal point of the Old Testament. It, it does. Um, it does take into consideration that Jesus Christ perfectly carried out God's will. We'll talk about that too in a second. It does uh, contain the idea that Jesus Christ's work, it it never needs to be repeated again. It's finished, it's accomplished, uh, and so on. But you know, this is kind of like that line in O Little Town of Bethlehem, which we shall soon sing at our church. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. I love that line, don't you? The hopes of all the years, the fears of all the years, they're all met in Jesus Christ. They're answered by him. They're addressed by God through him. And uh, so if, if redeeming a fallen humanity, God creates this universe he puts these little people on a pale blue dot. He populates this earth, and there are these little sinful, rebellious specks that hate God, and he intervenes and redeems them anyway and gives them life and causes them to love holy things. I mean, it's amazing. That is the centerpiece of human history, ladies and gentlemen, Jesus Christ and his work. And so, um, all that to say, the, uh, the men and women of faith who looked forward to Christ coming on the cross... And we who look back on the cross and see what was accomplished there are all saved the same way. Jesus Christ is the centerpiece of human history. And all saints come into the kingdom the same way. Looking forward to the promise of God and what God would provide to rescue. And we who have a clearer view, and we'll look at this more in a second, and look back to what happened on the cross, all saved the same way. So let's go to our passage. Our first point is a shadow forward. 
a light backward. Now look at verse 1. I'm going to read the whole thing to you, and, and it's, there's a lot of stuff in here, but we're going, to, we're going to make it pretty easy to understand, just like that. It says in verse 1, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Now, you look at that and you go, wow, there's a, there's a lot of stuff in there. I, it, there's some confusing speak, and, and what does all that mean? Well, I can tell you what most of the verse means right straight away. Um, look at the very beginning. It says, since the law. Now, when he's talking about the law, basically what he's doing is he's taking it and he's making an abbreviation. He's using, the scripture writer is using the word law as a summary to talk about all the stuff that pointed ahead to Jesus Christ. When he's talking about the law... He's talking about the Mosaic law and the Sinaitic system, the ritual system, the sacrificial system, the sacrifices that are mentioned at the end of uh, verse 1, that the sacrifices that are continually offered every year, okay? So you, now you understand most of that verse, the sacrifices that are offered every year, the law, that's what he's, he's saying, the law is a summary of that whole thing that pointed ahead to Jesus Christ, that whole billboard that pointed ahead. Okay, so now you understand most of that verse. And so to continue, it says that those things are a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. So those things in the Old Testament, that mosaic system that points ahead to Jesus Christ, those are shadows. That's a shadow of the real thing, the true forms. And that's a whopper of a point, ladies and gentlemen, because it even has to do with what the Bible is. I mean, I believe with all my heart, and I've taught many times in this room, that this is one continuous storyline. The Old Testament is not just a collection of little moral tales that uh, we, we glean some advice from. And we, we talk about Daniel and bravery, and we talk about David and bravery, and we have all these little moral, these, like, like Aesop's fables. It's not that at all. It's a storyline. And it's a, it's a redemptive storyline from cover to cover. The topic is Jesus Christ. The topic is God's redemption of his own people for his own glory. That's the Bible from cover to cover. And so the law, um, as, is, as is summarized here, is this vivid way that God demonstrates the problem of sin and God's remedy. It demonstrates what the wages of sin look like. You think back to the Old Testament sacrificial system where blood is shed. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. The life of a thing is in the blood, and you you kill that thing, and the blood spills out. Well, the blood spilled out of the Savior. The blood was poured out of the Savior unto death, even unto death on a cross. That's this vivid picture of uh, the real thing, the shedding of blood in the Old Testament pointing to the vivid picture of the real thing. And if you look at verse 1 again... You know, some, of the, some translations, anybody hearing a very high-end over here, or did I, do I have tinnitus? Okay, good, good, thank you. Now I can rest that I don't have a physical melody. Um, so when it says, since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, uh, this idea, um, uh, a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form, that's what I want to say. It, the, it, the ESV has the true form. This idea of the true form. If you look in other translations, uh, like New Living Translation, will say um, the good things themselves. So instead of tr- the true form, the good things themselves, the actual things, the good things themselves. Uh, NIV has the realities themselves. 
and uh, where's, where's uh, Ron? The King James and, and quite a few, excuse me, older translations. King James and, and a lot of older translations say um, the very image. Okay, so the idea is, um, and, and they do a good job of that, by the way. For since the law has but a shadow of the very image. Okay, that's kind of the idea. The true form equals the very image. And, and that's a good way to wrap your head around it because um, the idea is that the picture has now become clear. The picture was, was uh, opaque at one time, but now it's vivid. It was darkened. It was unclear because it was only a shadow. And, you know, it makes me think of that church downtown that I think it was a Methodist church or something. Remember like 10 years ago or so, a, a church burned down downtown? You know what I'm talking about? And, uh, in fact, I went down there. Uh, when it happened and took pictures. I woke up, er, went down there early the next morning. It still smelled smoky and everything, and I took a bunch of pictures of it because I thought it was interesting. Um, well, now that you know what they've done to it, is uh, they were going to, like, build it back. Let's build it back, this Memphis landmark. And, uh, you know, as time went on, people were like, you know, nobody really goes to church there, and there's no money. <laughs> and so what, all they did was erect, like, the frame of it all. You know what I'm talking about? You drive down there, and you just see this you know, this empty kind of shell of the shape of the building, but the building's not there. And now, uh, interestingly and kind of invitingly, there are picnic tables in there. Have you noticed that? Like there, pic, pic, there's this skeleton of the church that used to be there. There are picnic tables and people go there and eat their lunch. And it's kind of interesting and conflicting and sad and 901. It's all kinds of things, you know, kind of cool, but kind of sad. But my whole point is you drive by and you look at that church and you see the shape of it. But it's, it's, it's not, it's just a shadow, you know? It's not the true form. It's not the, it's not the vivid picture. It's not the, it's not the completed thing. But, but, but you have an idea of it, all right? And that's the whole point here too, ladies and gentlemen. Um, it's not the completed form. It's not the vivid picture, but it communicates a whole lot, doesn't it, when you see the frame? Well, that's the point here, ladies and gentlemen. Jesus Christ is the centerpiece of human history, that's the idea, that everything in the Old Testament pointed toward Jesus. Now, we've looked a lot over the past months, over the past year and a half, at um, the Old Testament sacrificial system and the way blood points forward and the way priests point to the ultimate priest and the way kings in the Old Testament point to the ultimate king. Judges point to the ultimate judge. Uh, sacrifices point to the ultimate sacrifice. Uh, priests point to the ultimate uh, intercessor. Um, all these things point forward. They're a shadow that, that is cast um, uh, forward, cast back and cast forward, okay? But let's look at some other things too. I'm so glad we have one working screen. I was, I was scared to death this morning when I came in because I want to show you some stuff, just a quick, quick history, redemptive history. So here we are, um, men and women have sinned, man and woman have sinned, we have sinned uh, in, our, in our federal parents, right, Adam and Eve. And here's what God says in the midst of cursing. He says, I will put enmity between you, Satan, the enemy. I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman between your offspring and hers, okay? So um, she's going to have a people that are going to be at enmity with you. He's, and this is, this is like this kernel of redemptive thought. Um, he shall bruise your head, whoever this rescuer figure is. I mean, it's, it's, it's a shadow, right? 
We don't know everything, but there's a shadow. There's something being communicated. He shall bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. So yes, uh, enemy of God, Satan, great, mysterious, dark uh, ruler. Yeah, you're going to bite his heel, but he's going to friggin' destroy you. So it says in early Genesis. All right, so we move on. God comes to Abram and he says, I will make you a great nation. In you, all the peoples of the earth shall be blessed. Well, that's a big redemptive thing, isn't it? God comes to this guy. He singles out this pagan. He says, guess what? A lot of impossible circumstances for you, but with me, nothing is impossible. And I'm going to take you. And from you, Abram, is going to come someone that is going to cause the peoples of the earth to be blessed. That's a shadow, isn't it? We don't have all the details, but there's something to trust in. If you're an Old Testament believer, there's something to believe in. Look at the next one. Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed through him. So the promise is restated again. Let's move on. Again to Abraham. In your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. This is God speaking, the refrain. You can tell there's a theme here. It's being restated. It's being restated. And if you were an Old Testament believer, and if you were given the law of Moses, you would look at that and you would go, okay, big problems with uh, humanity really big problems, sin problems. Uh, One guy murdered his brother and uh, sin is rampant and uh, God is dealing with it in some way. How about the next one? In your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Now God's saying that to the kid, Isaac. How about this? In you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Now it's to the next generation. How about this? The scepter shall not depart from Judah. Okay, now we're getting a definition of where it's all going to happen. The tribe of Judah, there's something's being singled out. Uh, The ruler's staff shall not depart from his feet. How about this? The Lord now moving way ahead to an established kingdom. The Lord swore an oath to David as a sure oath. One of your sons of your body I will set on your throne. So now we know. That God is working redemptively. He's made a promise. He's reaffirmed that promise. He's reaffirmed that promise. He's bringing it through a certain place. He's bringing it through a certain bloodline. It's being further defined, but it's still a shadow. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Wow. That sounds like something that will be recognized later. That when it does happen, those who have been given eyes to see and ears to hear go, Oh my goodness. This really is happening. This really is God forging redemption through a resistant human history. How about this? The people who have walked in darkness have seen a great light. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Prince of Peace. Of the increase in power of his government and of peace there will be no end. Wow. So now we know that some kind of deliverer is going to bring about a permanent delivery. Um, he's going to have a permanent govern, government, and peace will be without end. Is that not, is that not powerful? Um, how about this? My servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. And how about this? Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he, this figure, shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Now we have this picture of this divine figure, God working and God working and God working. And this is what Old Testament believers would see. They go, okay, this God is making promises. He's making promises that are, that are shadows, 
but they're things that I can trust. He's promised some kind of deliverer, some person, some figure who's going to establish this kingdom forever and ever. I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them and be their shepherd. How about this? But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. Again, we're Judah, and now we've got a specific place, a tiny place, an unlikely place, tiny, little, unlikely Bethlehem, Ephrathah. It's where the Savior was born. Um, you shall be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth are from of old, from ancient of days. I mean, my goodness. Rejoice, O daughter of Zion. Re- uh, shout aloud. He's going to come mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Wow. So another indicator of what's going to happen. The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. I think that's all of them. So, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> saving a doomed humanity, and, and what would accomplish that, is the centerpiece <laughs> of human history. It's not space exploration or all this other cool stuff that we we can accomplish. It's not having a a translation software that lets us communicate with each other and spread things all over the world and all the technology. It's not that. It's that God has broken in and provided a savior. You know, I think we like superhero movies because we long for a superhero. They just make one superhero movie after another, after another, after another. Somebody with powers that are greater than ours. Somebody who's not destroyed. Somebody who has some kind of moral compass that steps in and saves the good people and and, uh, takes care of the bad ones. We long for that. Why? Because we need a superhero. We need the ultimate superhero who can save us. And and that's the point. Jesus Christ is a centerpiece of human history. And it's kind of like a backlit photo. And with this illustration, we'll move on. Um, you know, when you take a photo and the sun's behind you, you know what's going to happen to your face, right? It's black. It's washed out. I mean, you get that beautiful sunset, and then it's like these two figures. And you can kind of tell uh, it's Larry Higginbotham because of the head and everything. Um, you know, I'm the same way. Is that Michael Jordan? No, it's Jim Umloff. You know, you can kind of see in the, you know, lopsided. You can just kind of tell by the figure. It's a shadow. It's a backlit photo. And that's the whole point, ladies and gentlemen, is um, there is, per the Old Testament, a holy place. There is a spotless and costly payment for sin. There is a kingdom being established. There is a priest who mediates on behalf of the sinner. There is an atonement made for sin. It's a shadow, but it points forward to an ultimate reality. All right, our second point. Uh, it's a matter of the hearts. Look at verse 4. Um, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. All right. Now, if you've been with the study for a while, um, you know that ritual, temple, sacrificial shedding of blood has been expounded upon uh, scrupulously by the scripture writer. And we've talked about it over and over again. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins in God's redemptive theater. And, uh, you know, it's his story, right? Uh, He wrote it. uh, He's got a star of it. He knows the conclusion. Jesus is the star. And so the question might be asked, if it's it's true here that um, the, the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin ultimately, then the question is, why did God institute this system if it's not going to work? Why did he do it? Well, you know, I've already answered in a, in a way is that it's a shadow that shows us not, not the true form yet, but 
gives us something of that reality, right? But uh, if, if, why is it only temporary? Why does God put it in place? Why is it repetitive? Um, why is it unable to say to the deepest recesses of the person's heart, you're going to be okay, spiritually, conscience-wise? Why is it insufficient? Well, let me show you a few more verses. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen better than the fat of rams. So isn't it interesting? God puts in place a sacrificial system whereby the people get this vivid picture and this temporary relief that has to be performed again and again and again to, to make atonement for their sins. But there's also this sense that it's not fully accomplished. Um, so God puts a system in place. It pleases him to do that. And yet, at the same time, the scriptures are very clear that uh, to obey is better than sacrifice. And to listen is better than the fat of rams. So yes, sacrifices are put in place by God. But what does he want? He wants an adoring heart. He wants a heart that's full of gratitude that obeys his will. How about this? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? That's a rhetorical question. The answer is no. Is that going to fix everything? No. How about this? What is the multitude of your sacrifices, says a frustrated Yahweh? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. What's he saying there? If you read, if you read Isaiah 1, um, yeah, God is frustrated. Um, God is speaking sharply, and he's basically saying, you put on your little church show, and you carry out your little church activities, and you say, praise the Lord, brother, and, and have all this terminology and stuff. Th- that's not what I'm looking for. I'm not looking for the exterior rote stuff. I'm zeroed in on the heart. That's God's message. And I'll tell you this, too. Uh, I think this goes back. Yeah. Um, I, 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 I'm personally very convicted and at odds with most people, I would think, most Bible teachers. And um, I love asking this to people, um, and I've asked it of you before. Cain brings an offering to the Lord in Genesis 4. Abel brings an offering to the Lord in Genesis 4. Cain's offering is um, uh, of the fruit of the ground. So he grew some stuff, brought it, and that was his offering. Um, Abel's offering... Uh, was the firstborn of his flock and of the fat portion. So Abel takes uh, a creature of some sort in an excellent condition, not a throwaway, not some gimpy little, ooh, he's bad, in bad shape anyway, let's kill him and give him to God. No, he takes the best one, and he gives him to God. On the other hand, Cable goes, oh, I grew this stuff, and look, hey, prize uh, eggplants, you know, look. And God receives one and is pleased with it, and God doesn't receive the other one. And the question is, why? Well, if I opened it up, I bet you people would go, one's an animal, a sacrificed animal, and blood was shed, and the other one is produce. I think that's the stock answer, and I've heard that preached many, many a time authoritatively. One is a sacrifice, and blood was shed, and the other one was produce, and uh, so God received the one and not the other. And my answer to that is, maybe. Prove it. I mean, look at Genesis 4 and prove it. You tell me 
how you can speak conclusively about that. Well, the sacrificial system uh, imported backward, blah, blah, blah. Oh, really? So you're saying that uh, four or five hundred years later, so something that doesn't even exist yet is, this, is, is what Genesis 4 is teaching. I just don't see that. I don't see it. Now, listen, there's some way that God has provided for them to still engage with him. What that way is, we don't know. It's mysterious. There's some way that they're still worshiping. There's some redemptive way that God is still allowing humans to engage with him. Okay, We can see that in Genesis 4. But I'm saying to you that the clearer thing Genesis 4 is teaching is that one guy came with a heart after God, and the other guy came with a heart that was not after God. I don't think you can say something that happened centuries in the future can be imported back or was told to them when a sacrificial system wasn't even instituted by God yet. I think that's just dangerous and a stretch. It's preached widely all over the world. I just am not one of those people who believes it. I think the issue comes back down to the heart. One had, and you see the resistant heart of Cain. Cain is angry. Rather than saying, oh, well, Lord, how how would you like this sacrifice? I mean, if he had brought the wrong sacrifice and said, Lord, I've done this, was I mistaken, Lord? Oh, Father, I mean, Yahweh, Uh, not even that yet. I don't even know what to call him yet. Uh, how, How shall I respond? There's not that. There's anger. You see the heart attitude. And so the whole point, ladies and gentlemen is um, why did God put the whole system in place if it ultimately couldn't fix things? The answer is because it was a signpost to the remedy. It was a shadow that pointed forward and uh, is now made clear. And so the application for you is this. God rejects Cain's offering for whatever reasons. Okay, maybe it, maybe it is that it was a blood offering. It wasn't a blood offering, maybe so. But the ultimate issue is that it was not by his heart. It was not from an adoring, submissive heart. And um, that's what all those verses speak of, is God's displeasure with sacrifices that are not backed up by a heart. He doesn't want the external crud. He doesn't want the robotic behavior. He doesn't want the rote. He wants you. All right. Um, And by the way, obedience to his will is what an adoring heart looks like. And that brings us to our last point. Uh, The perfect obedience of the perfect human. So if you would look at verse 5, we're in the home stretch here, back to Hebrews here, Jimbo. uh, uh, Verse 5. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offer... And by the way, this is a quote of of Psalm uh, 40, I believe, yeah. Uh, He says, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. Interesting. David is writing this, but as with so many prophetic writings and psalms, they're written on different levels. So it addresses a real situation in real time, but there's this greater meaning. There's a double meaning. There's a parallel running here, and that's what's happening. David is writing a psalm. Jesus is appropriating it for himself. He's saying, that's of me. And he's speaking very specifically. Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, Father, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold... I have come, and here it is, to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. And so when Jesus says, um, 
hey, you don't desire uh, sacrifices and offerings and bird offerings and sin offerings and so on. Uh, he says in verse 9, I have come to do your will. That, that's the whole point. Those things that point ahead are no longer needed. You know why? Because somebody finally came and was able to do God's will. You know, folks, um, Jesus, the Son of God, is divine. Can I ask you a question? Can Jesus, the Son of God, who is divine, who shares the attributes of God, who is of the same essence, of the same stuff as Father and Spirit, can Jesus, the divine Son of God, die? Can the divine Son of God die? No. Can a human being die? Yes. A human body can die. Yours will. So what happens? The divine Son of God who cannot die. The righteousness that's needed for God's holy courtroom comes to earth and takes upon a human nature and a human body that can die. So it's the, it's the, he's the only one who could do it. He's the only one who could come with his divine righteousness and carry out God's will in perfect conformity and then be valid uh, to die, be eligible to be the sacrifice he so relates to us. That's what little baby Jesus came to earth to do, to perfectly conform to God's will in obedience. And in doing that, the sacrifice of his life is made valid. Uh, it's, it's the life that we should have lived, and then it's the death laid down in our place. He perfectly obeyed God in perfect truth. All right, so application for your life. Christ's perfect obedience made perfect his sacrifice. Verse 10 says, And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. All right, I close with this. Um, Yeah, it says here, um, yeah, The Old Testament era was one of expectancy rather than arrival. The godly of that era embraced the promises without seeing their fulfillment. They were not, however, at a disadvantage compared with us who look back to the completion of the promises of Christ. For we and they are made perfect together. That's a great summary of this passage and in keeping with our main idea that Jesus Christ is the centerpiece of human history. Here's the cross. Prior to the cross, believers had veiled shadows to go to. Redemptive promises. I will do this. The peoples will be blessed. I'll do it through this line. I'll do it in this place. These things are going to happen. You're going to see these things later fulfilled. It points forward. It points forward and points forward. And they don't, they don't go, well, let's see. There's going to be this thing called Roman execution. And uh, the Savior's going to die on the cross. His name's going to be Jesus and, uh, and so on. They don't have that. But what they do have is a God who promises delivery in an opaque way. Shadow. On this side of the cross, we look to the cross and we look to the Old Testament with greater light. It shines light on the Old Testament. We go, oh, that's what all that means. This is to whom it all points. Uh, So all believers on the front side of the cross or the back side of the cross are saved the same way by the blood of the Lamb. One points forward in promise and one looks back to the promise 
but that's the way God saves. Let's pray. Our Father, we just um, are humbled that um, you have rumbled through human history and indeed our own personal resistance to you, Father. Uh, You have made eyes to see and ears to hear. You have given life where there was none before and you've taken dry bones and filled them um, with... uh, cover them in sinew and flesh, and uh, we thank you for that, Lord. We thank you that our Christ has come, and in him we are secure forever, and we glory in the centerpiece of human history and are marveling that we're caught up in this thing called grace, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, everybody.